Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick uh, here with Jake Luke of uh, Baltimore Beatdown and the Baltimore Beatdown podcast. You call you call this something else now, right? The Exit Fifty Two podcast. Yes, sir. We have uh, we have since moved platforms over there. So yeah, that's right. Exit Fifty Two. All right, outstanding. Uh, Jake, happy to have you and uh, talk about a happy uh, day against the ba- of uh, offense against the Bengals. And uh, I thought we'd first start with just the state of Baltimore sports right now. I mean, it feels like uh, it feels like we've reached a little bit of a zenith here. I think uh, I, I remarked that both teams ascended into the stratosphere at the same time on this past Sunday. It was uh, it was quite a time there with the Ravens getting uh, what I would call a I don't know if I'd call it a a massive massive win, but it felt like a pretty big one. It felt like they kind of got a monkey off their back there with uh, all that Joe Burrow has done to them in recent years, albeit uh, maybe not at full strength at times. But uh, it felt like they went in there, they made a statement, and then uh, of course as that's going on, you have the Orioles. Uh, you know, choking up on the bat and sending one down the line there to, to force uh, extra innings against the Rays and uh, clinch the playoffs in a beer-soaked celebration that I think will be uh, rewatched for years to come. So it's a, it's a good time, to your point. Yeah, that was extremely eloquent, much better than I could do on the topic. I, I, I do think this was one of the double highs that we've ever seen um, in Baltimore sports. And I, I, I can never get people to follow a specific definition. And by the way, don't try try to trap people on Twitter is like try to herd cats into into a specific definitional thought exercise. They'll just they'll refuse to do it. And then they'll say, you're an idiot. You know, you, 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 any of the Super Bowls is bigger than this. But I, I ask people to, you know, is there a, is there a, a instance you can think of where the second biggest win for the Baltimore sports team in a day was better than this? On, than it was on Sunday. And it's the, the second biggest win. I don't even know if it was the Orioles or the, or the Ravens. I mean, they were both great wins. But I will tell you this, there aren't many second greatest wins that are anywhere close to whichever one it was. Yeah, really. And it's interesting because how often have they been good at the same time? Maybe a handful of times. And it, it's certainly in my lifetime. Um, and I, I I do think back to the last time this happened. I think it was 2016. And they the Orioles clinched on game 162. I forget who they were playing. And that was when the Ravens played host to the Raiders that season. And Derek Carr and Michael Crabtree, I think, hooked up for like three touchdowns in the second half. And the Orioles got it done. The Ravens uh, suffered a pretty, pretty crushing loss at home. So I like I, I was thinking back on it. I was like, I'm pretty sure like we've never really had them kind of peaking at the same time like this in the same way. And certainly it's only a week two game, but it felt pr- like kind of a big deal to my point earlier. Yeah, I, I, I agree completely. I mean, there's. Uh, you could probably go back to September of 1996. Maybe the Orioles won on September 1st. That was a season where that you know. But could either could the September 1st win for the Orioles have been as big as either of these wins? If you go back into the 70s, maybe there's a World Series game the Orioles won on the same day the Colts won a game. But I doubt the Colts win was as important as either of these wins was. So it's a it's a I I, I just I want people to soak in the moment with me. 
in a sense. And it sounds from the way you're talking about it that you completely do, but I, I don't get the sense everybody is in the same way. And I just I, I kind of want to scream at people that these, this doesn't happen very often. Yeah. That was the point that I made on the, uh, the recap podcast where I, you know, and listen, I might've had a few drinks throughout that day and I might've been <laughs> feeling a little emotional, but I was like, you know what, you got to appreciate these moments when they come. Yeah. It's only a week two game and yeah, it's only a playoffs clinch. They haven't gotten it done for the division yet. And certainly there's a lot more to go once they do get to the playoffs, but you just got to appreciate these moments as they come along because if, if all you're doing this for is kind of that results base, got to win a championship, got to do that. then I, that's not a very fun existence as a sports fan. I don't think, you know, that's a great point is, is, you know, what, how much is enough as a sports fan? I tell you, as a season ticket holder, what I want is a competitive team every year that has a chance to make the playoffs and a chance to do well in the playoffs to a certain extent. I don't expect them to always to have the dominating quarterback or the dominating whatever it takes at the time to go all the way. But I, I just want a lottery ticket into, into the thing. And I don't want my franchise tanking or, you know, riding the cycle to try and peak at a higher level than other teams in the, in the years where they can do that. I just, I hate that as a fan. I don't, I don't know where you are on it. Yeah, no, it feels like society is increasing and maybe I'm getting a little too meta here, but it feels like society is just increasingly becoming all or nothing. You know, it's mm -hmm. the, the haves and the have nots. It's the hedge funds. It's this and that. And it, it just feels like, authenticity is being stripped away in a lot of different ways and to see the Orioles and I know it's interesting they kind of did this a little bit with tearing things down and going that analytical route and rebuilding that way and the Ravens have dabbled in that a little bit but it does feel like we're we're still dealing with two two organizations that are kind of operating in that that way that you're talking about that feels authentic that feels kind of true to the the roots of kind of a, a smaller sort of blue collar town at least as far as pro sports uh you know the pro sports scene goes so Consistent competitiveness. Anyway, that's what I'm. I'm for. I appreciate it, Luke. Always appreciate hearing somebody else who has, has a good uh, viewpoint on this. You know, I, I love the viewpoints that agree agree with me, but I also I'm with Voss on a Friday morning GM show, and you probably know about this now. And Voss and I are a little bit different on this. He he wants to ride the peak, and he's okay with the with uh, dealing with the trough as it happens. Uh, and and uh, you know, it's it's also nice to have that conversation when I have it. Yeah, no, he's a good friend of mine. I've, I've heard it a time or two over the years, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a game I, I, I'm not sure it was as close as the score indicated, largely because of that uh, punt return uh, off the picked-up flag. I Yeah, I agree with you, but I also kind of think about the fact that that Geno Stone interception, that's about a 14-point swing when you really think about it because when they did get down into the red zone, they did a decent job. I think they got stopped once, but... Other than that, you have this, the uh, the stone interception there. That's a 14-point swing there. So I'm with you as far as the punt return, but I do think a little bit of the uh, the momentum definitely shifted in Baltimore's direction. I'm not sure if you're a big momentum guy. I know that's another divisive topic uh, with uh, sports media these days. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one to think about in that respect. But I, I do think the stone interception was definitely a, a tide turner as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, sure, I believe in momentum to a certain degree. I also believe that the, the balance of strategies usually favors the trailing team in football. And we really saw that here is that, you know, the, the Ravens had to take multiple uh, attempts to take negative expected point plays in order to get the game over with. And that's, that's what I basically mean by that is expected points aren't a very good measure in the second half of NFL games. You really need expected wins on plays. And the Ravens' ability to have those six plays when they finally got the, 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 the ball again and run out the game, despite the fact that Bengals knew exactly what was coming, uh, was really great. That, that To be able to see Monk in, 
you know, engineer that the way I'm sure Roman would have, because, you know, that was what Roman was really good at. Uh, it was great to see Malkin do that. Yeah. And maybe expected chain moving or expected time off the clock, something like that mm-hmm. could be adjusted for the second half. Cause I do think you're onto something there. And it reminded me and a different coordinator, different offense and everything, but it reminded me of the second half of the game in Pittsburgh last year where they're down to their third quarterback. The Steelers yeah. know exactly what they were going to do. And uh, they just, they just continued pressing and pressing and pressing with that running game. And Anthony Brown, you know, God help him. He did all he could. And he, he got them out of there with a W. Yeah. Really similar final play there too, with Gus Edwards running for six yards on third and four or something. And uh, you know, the Ravens weren't going to pass the ball and with Anthony Brown there, it was a, a good choice as it turned out and outstanding play. Some more bad news today. Unfortunately, some bad news on, on Sunday with the injuries to Owe and OBJ, which I don't – has there been additional news? I've been kind of buried in my work here today, uh, and I have not heard anything additional about either of those two in terms of the uh, likely duration of either injury. I have not heard a peep on OA. I am not sure what's going on there. It's interesting. They were both described as not serious. I think Beckham even more so was described as not a serious injury, but uh, – it's funny. We were just uh, recording with Jack Settleman, who hosts a podcast with Marlon Humphrey, and he, you know, that the, our podcast is out right now. You can go listen to it. Jack says that they were supposed to have Marlon on this week, that podcast, but he was injured, and that, so he couldn't appear with them. So, may I don't know. Oh, that's the rule they have that he's not allowed to not, not allowed to appear on a podcast when injured. Okay, so I, I don't know, like if that speaks to the extent of it at all. It, like he's still within the injury protocol. I guess that would kind of dictate dictate that. So yeah, that's pretty much all I've got uh, as far as Beckham goes. Hopefully, it is uh, like John says, not super serious. But we know how he's been with uh, injury updates over the years. Maybe a little shaky yeah. in that regard. So yeah, he's he's very secretive, and um, you know what he ought to do. And you know, it, there's a good chance that Harbaugh will hear about this at some point. Is the is the interesting thing? But what Harbaugh ought to do is pick one player. And just say, you know, guys, uh, you probably have heard about Kevin Zeitler, but I'm not going to say anything about his injury status for for the uh, uh, next game against the Colts. Here, uh, we're keeping that playing that close to the vest and whatnot, even though there's no injury involved. Because <laughs> if your only comment is no comment, it's got to be no comment about every player. And he's he's unfortunately his problem is that they say no, nothing serious, nothing serious for the players where it is nothing serious or there's no reason. But he's also nothing serious about about players where it's a uh, uh, things he, if he wants to misdirect he needs to throw a fake injury out there every once in a while too i don't know if he's willing to play that game or uh or not or if it would really do any good but uh you know the, the other bad news that happened today of course Ardarius washington going to ir yeah that's unfortunate i think he's a a guy who reminds me a little bit of geno stone of maybe that homegrown kind of diamond in the rough player on the back end and he had played well uh to start the season played well in the preseason and uh it's just unfortunate uh, that a guy like that who presumably was uh, about to maybe take off in a manner similar to Geno Stone. He looked good in that nickel spot. He was strong at times, struggled a little bit against T. Higgins, Higgins. which is certainly going to happen with that size mismatch. But uh, yeah, that's that's too bad to see. Yeah, it really, really is. Ardarius Washington, to me, was the revelation of camp. You know, basically the fourth choice at uh, slot corner and won the job so convincingly in the preseason that I thought, you know, that was you had all this bad news going on with injuries. Uh, particularly in week one, but you had this great thing coming out of camp that that you had a healthy offensive line, and boy, that turned around in a hurry. And you had Ardarius Washington, who emerged as the obvious starting slot corner when you tried a bunch of guys there and couldn't. Stevens had to be moved for for demand purposes to outside corner, and that Mallette got hurt and Pepe got hurt. So that's a that's quite a you turn to your last choice, and then he ends up being your first choice after all, kind of thing. 
Yeah, but it is, to be fair, a time of year to experiment. And especially when you start off 2-0 and when it could have been very reasonable that you would start off 1-1 and with a tough divisional game on the road. You've given yourself some breathing room to experimenting. You've got a, a team coming to town who's uh, you're probably you're going to be expected to take care of business against. Let's just call it like it is. So Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I hope that that's a reasonable assumption given everything is wrong with the Ravens right now. Mustafer added to the 53 today. The Ravens don't have a landing strip right now. They've got six guys, and what I mean by that is they've got six guys on the roster who are hurt. Probably all six will not play this week. That would be my guess. Now, we haven't had a practice yet, but OA and OBJ, my, my guess is if one of them plays, I think it would be uh, above my over, uh, over-under on the, on the number. I'd probably have an over-under of a half. I don't know how I'd, how I'd have the lay going on that. Yeah, they kind of played it safe with week one, didn't they? Where they could, probably could have played Andrews. We had heard that he did actually have a setback on the Friday going into that game, but I do think they played it safe a little bit. I would probably expect the same thing here to your point. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's just if you can't get it done against either Anthony Richardson or Gardner Minshew at home, even with a little bit of a B squad like we're hinting at here, uh, then you've probably got bigger problems to worry about anyway. Fair fair enough. Yeah. And and just to, to go, do a little roster math with me. So they got 53 spots on the roster. They have two practice squad elevations. That's 55. You need 48 to field your, your eighth offensive lineman. You get a 49th activation for your QB3, which the Ravens have three QBs on the roster, so might as well take that. And that means they have to have six deactivations. Well, their six in- inactivations are already decided for them without any additional IR moves. Uh, assuming those six guys all can't play. It's not an ideal situation. It is It is far from an ideal situation. Yeah, no doubt. But, uh, I mean, this coaching staff, they've shown an ability to weather storms in the past. They have shown an ability to do that through these first two games. I mean, you got to be impressed with the job that D'Ellis Andrews has done with this offensive line, to your point, with Mustafer, with McCary there at the left side. I mean, Patrick McCary at left tackle, John Simpson, a cast off from, you know, Nowheresville with uh, with the Raiders last year. You've got Sam Mustafer, just another guy that was just bouncing around the league a little bit, starting at center. And they're getting really quality play out of them. That's super impressive. And then everything going on in the back end, getting quality play out of those guys, too. I think they're built for it very, you know, pretty well. And you've got reinforcements coming with Humphrey, with Bowser, eventually with Williams. We learned today not going to be heading to the IR. I'm sure you had that on the list as well. Uh, good news on that front, certainly. So, like I said, it's it's a good time to have to deal with this kind of thing. But you're right. It is far from ideal. And uh, how often have we been there with the Ravens in the last couple of years? Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. They already have a roster that is packed with talent ready to return. So they have Bowser sitting there. They have Pepe sitting there and they have um, Keaton Mitchell and Malik Ham sitting there. So it's a, it's a pretty significant amount of talent they have ready to go. In fact, Keaton Mitchell, if he were ready today, he'd be on the roster. It wouldn't be Gordon. That's pretty clear. Malik Ham, if he were ready today, they'd be sticking him in an outside linebacker right away for a not insignificant number of snaps, I would think, um, in this next game. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. I certainly hope that the Ravens can make good use of their IR returns this year. You know, normally I'd say you, you never really threaten that number of eight that you can have in a season, but the Ravens actually might do it this year. They might, they might threaten bringing back eight guys, but uh, does not usually happen that people get injured early enough and unseriously enough that they can actually return at some point during the season count against one of your eight. And the, and the Ravens actually started with a couple of guys that they moved there before the season even began that were just minor injuries in the preseason. If anyone's going to be setting new precedents, as far as <laughs> it's this franchise, let me tell you. 
They do it right, don't they, as far as managing that roster on the margin. And that's, you know, when you get right down to it, that's, that's the beauty of how they were able to assemble the depth necessary to weather this storm in Cincinnati and possibly this coming week against Indianapolis as well. Absolutely. It's, it's something that, and to your point with the people like Voss, you know, they're, they're kind of, they get frustrated with the fascination with the depth and the back end of the roster, but that's kind of what helps you weather storms like this when, when you get into these situations and, you know, they, they've got an eye for late, you know, late gems in the draft and diamond in the rough type uh, undrafted free agents. And those kind of those at times they can be the make or break players that help you uh, uh, maybe prove the difference between a win or a loss uh, when you're really going through it like this. Mm-hmm. All right, outstanding. They had they were badly outsnapped by the um, Texans in Week One, but they outsnapped the Bengals seventy to fifty-seven. A lot of really nice efficiency in terms of series success rate. Now, series success rate is the number of times the denominator is the number of times you have a first down, and the numerator is how many times of those you get either another first down or a touchdown. So it's how many times did you not fail to get a first down? If you want to think of it. They only had five failures after all game and they had 26 successes. So 26 out of 31, 84% uh, is outstanding for serious success rate. Even for a single game, it's, it's a, it's a number rarely achieved by frame of reference. The 2019 Ravens had about a 79% uh, success rate by the, for the year. And a lot of that was due to fourth down success. So they were maybe at something like 75, 76% without their fourth down success actually jacking that up and that fourth down success comes at a risk of course because if you lose the ball you you lose some significant field position from that no doubt talk about you talk about one shot play in this game and obviously they hit on it and that's great Mm -hmm. but it seemed like it was impressed upon this offense that hey we're going to go out there and we're going to sustain drives and we're going to keep their offense who has given us problems in the past couple years off of the field and right out of the gate what happens eight minute drive march it right down their throat you know, Odell Beckham here, Gus Edwards there, Lamar Jackson scrambling here, Mark Andrews there. And it just, you know, it just felt like that was the, that was the focus. And you saw it right out of that first drive. And it was great that they had success on it. Cause I think it set a tone through the rest of the game and it really settled Jackson in. He looked, I think as calm in the pocket, but also he had a, he had enough of kind of a quick twitch with his eyes and he had enough of a sensibility of, okay, I'm going to step out here, step up, run for this first down and I'm just going to get down. And it felt like he was just kind of, really in control in a way that we haven't seen in a long time, which was nice. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. He did scramble some, and some of those would have been the extended plays he would have maybe had normally that would have extended for three or four seconds. But his average time to throw was 259, which is extremely low for a quarterback like Lamar. Lamar is usually right around three seconds, uh, even for a full season. He's, you know, his number last year might have been, it might have been 298 or it might have been 301. I really don't know, but it's, it's right around three seconds. Whereas Burrow was 228 in this game. He was, he was very much trying to get the ball out before any kind of rush could develop. But a, a, a very fast paced set of reads for Lamar. And I, to hear, a, I don't remember who the quote came from, but it was a player who said that Lamar Jackson's reads were some of the fastest he'd ever, he's ever seen. I would really love for that to be true. I'm not sure I completely believe it, but I, but I would really love for it to be true. Uh, faster reads are one of the way Lamar is going to graduate to being the next level of quarterback. Most of the game that that he's still got to do is not physical; it's mental in terms of of trying to process things more quickly, process things more quickly in the huddle in terms of getting to the line of scrimmage, process things more quickly at the line of scrimmage so he can make checks. 
Um, it's that field general type stuff that is what's left for Lamar to learn in terms of being a quarterback. I think he's got all the other tools necessary. Yeah. And I think part of it too is seeing and taking the check down a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe uh, I think that could be a function of the offense to uh, developing around him. Cause I'm not sure it was all the way there with Roman at times, but you know, Justice Hill in a Texas route. I see that. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to take what they give me. I feel like what he tries to do sometimes, and it makes perfect sense for a guy with his abilities, is allow the play to develop around him a little bit. When it breaks down, I'm going to step up. I'm going to step right. I've got space in front of me. I'm go- I'm going to go and run for it. And like I said, I'm totally fine with that. But it would also be nice to see a little bit more of just check it down right, check it down left, let the athlete take care of uh, take care of that for me. And maybe now that they've paid him, they're going to start to emphasize that a little bit more. Uh, nice 37 to 33 pass, uh, run to pass level. And that, you know, there's a chicken egg relationship there. They had the lead most of the game. It's nice to see them be able to maintain that, um, still try and run out the game. Uh, and, and it, they had this, a similar kind of relationship between run and pass in the game against the Texans. They just didn't get it done in terms of running the, running the game out on their last three drives. They did a lousy job, but in this, in this game, they did a wonderful job of it. You know, they got two first downs when they absolutely needed to have it. Uh, and uh, and it was a fine uh, day. But I, I, it'd be hard for me to find anyone who could compellingly complain about the ratio of, say, run and pass that's occurred for the first couple of weeks for the Ravens. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. It felt like at times during the Roman era, there would be imbalances in that regard and it felt like the passing game was a little bit lacking and that's just a bad combination in general and it felt like good balance through the first couple of weeks and to your point the execution i think was better this week funny enough in a hostile environment much louder much more difficult i would think but it seemed like they just everyone was rowing in the same direction in that regard and uh it was really interesting to see and it it also felt like the passing game was a little bit of an extension of that running game where and i emphasize this in the the preview show that we did just take what they give you. Don't try to overcomplicate it. It's going to be a hostile environment and the stakes are going to be high. So just settle in and let's see if we can just move the ball down here uh, a clip at a time and not go too crazy. And that's kind of exactly what they did. They, When it was over the middle, they just took it over the middle and they allowed the clock to continue to run. And I think that and I think Anarumo wanted him to throw the ball to the point that a lot of people were making. And mm-hmm. there are more uh, more all 22 savvy people that could confirm or deny that. But it felt like Anarumo was saying, hey. Here it is. If you want to throw against us, go for it. And Lamar Jackson said, thank you, sir. I think I'll do that. And it worked out pretty well for them. Yeah, definitely. Even when they were spying him, they weren't really able to keep up with him. Um, And the amount of pocket sidestepping that Lamar did this was at the highest level I've ever seen him do. He's had he's had games where he's been able to back up and create a play sometimes that that just boggles the mind. Uh, but he's had other. I'm thinking 2019, the touchdown to Boykin in the very first game against Miami was one of these back up, back up, back up, throw it, throw it in the end zone. Actually, recognize the two Miami uh, defensive backs, one of which was Minka, had had his back turned to him and be able to throw it up. So Boykin is the only one who can react in time to run to the ball. Uh, just a remarkable throw. But in this game, he was roaming the pocket and, you know, it was like a maze to him and he's still moving around in it fairly easily. Yeah, no, it felt like, and a lot of it was, I'm going to remain throw ready through a lot of this stuff, whether there's chaos going on around me, there's guys falling down, there's this and that. I'm just going to step up. I'm going to step to the right. I'm going to shade a little bit to the left. I'm going to remain throw ready. But hey, when it's time to go, my clock is going to tell me and I go. And there were a few crucial scrambles there. Uh, a lot of people pointing out not many design runs for him thus far through the season, but 
I mean, his legs were a big, big asset in this game. And I think a big part of that is because he threw it so effectively that the Bengals eventually kind of had to respect that. And once you start to respect that, guess what? You're leaving something else open and that is his legs and he's going to make use of them. And he did. Yeah, well, he left a really big run on the field too, with the the nineteen yard run that was that was called back on the muster for hold. Um, yep. Would it would have I, the, those two holding penalties on back to back plays against DJ Reader stalled a drive, and it was one of the only times the Ravens failed in the red zone. They had well, it was the only time they made four trips to the red zone. They scored twenty four points, uh, which by the way is outstanding. Um, anytime you can score six points per drive, I think anybody can realize that would be outstanding, but I would do want to provide a framework for this in two games. They've now had 49 points on nine red zone trips. That's 5.4 per trip. Kansas city led the entire NFL last year at 4.2 points per red zone trip. So the Ravens are off to a fantastic start in that regard. And they were eighth at 3.5, despite a terrible finish last year. And a lot of that was a, just a complete failure to finish in the red zone with Humphrey. Uh, sorry, Humphrey uh, Huntley at quarterback uh, late in the season. Yeah, I felt like the drives were sustained there with Roman. Uh, you got to give him that credit, certainly. But there was just a, a complete lack of finishing. And I think there was a lack of finishing on the other side of the ball, too, where it's like the, you're missing that interception by this close. You're missing mm-hmm. that sack by this close. Certainly, we saw that with uh, one particular player. But yeah, on the offensive side of the ball, that was a big complaint. Uh, along with a lot of the procedural stuff as far as getting to the line in time and getting lined up correctly. And uh, we really haven't seen too much of that at all through these first two games. And uh, it's it's a welcome breath of fresh air. You're talking about the couple drops by Patrick Queen in terms of the interceptions last year? No, I'm talking about OA not finishing sacks. Oh, okay. Because a couple drops by Patrick Queen were right in the resume yeah. too. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's talk about Lamar a little bit and we'll move on and, uh, and, and hopefully get to as much of this as we can. Uh, the Bengals did not um, do what I would call their normal thing. They have been uh, much more of a four-man rush team against the Bengals, against the Ravens over the years, and it hasn't really mattered whether it was Flacco or Jackson. They've still tried to stay with four most of the time, but they rush five-plus on 12 occasions, 36%. It's a lot for them, I would say. Um, what I've always talked about in previous seasons is that uh, they, they are expert at rushing that linebacker just as Jackson is breaking the pocket. Now, the rule is, of course, the the spy or the inside linebacker uh, in zone on the side where the roll occurs rushes the quarterback immediately as soon as the pocket is broken. It's kind of a universal defensive rule. But they, JOK in particular, the Browns, uh, the combination of Wilson and Davis Gaither also, even Pratt to a lesser extent, that's really Davis Gaither and Wilson, um, rush Lamar and have given him fits over the years by anticipating the pocket breaking before it really does and, and getting there. But, um, you know, in, the, in this game, honestly, the uh, the Bengals, they did a little bit better when they rushed five against Lamar. I'm going to go through those numbers in a moment, but uh, uh, it's, it's surprising. And there's certainly committed resources to getting it done in this game that we really haven't seen in past years. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's uh, one of those things where, you, you just kind of wonder how are you going to be able to contain a guy like that as a defensive coordinator? It certainly would keep me up at night. And uh, I think like the, the QB spy, it can be a blessing and a curse because to your point there, there's a technique for it. There's like a, okay, I break it this time or that time. I feel like Lamar is a guy who he knows it. Yep. Yeah. He knows it. And he's so, and he's so freaking fast and he can cut so quickly and he's, he's so quick and it's gotta be, it's gotta be hell as a linebacker to have to deal with that. But to your point, I mean, they have had the guys like, 
Wilson, especially in the last couple of matchups, I feel like has been kind of a kind of a hair on fire type guy that's been tough to deal with, but uh, certainly not not this past game. And I think to what we talked about, maybe it has something to do with uh, the efficiency in the passing game to start things out. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a that's a fair connection to make. I want to talk about amp, ample time and space, ball out quick, and pressure. And for folks who you know are, are new to the show or maybe have heard me use the terms but don't know them yet, ATS ample time and space effectively means the quarterback has a three second pocket or would have had a three second pocket even if he releases the ball early because that will sometimes happen. Uh, BOQ is ball out quick, meaning pressure might have developed within three seconds. I err on the side of pressure developing if I'm not sure, and uh, but the ball is released in less than three seconds. And then a pressure event is is some sort of pressure event occurring before three seconds occur, but not after. So you can have a an ATS opportunity that becomes a sack if Lamar holds the ball for five seconds and then gets taken down at the end of that. Um, but anyway, to go through the, the opportunities in this game, 13 ATS opportunities. And by the way, that's a lot, 39%. He completed 10 out of 13 on those for 147 net yards, 11.3 yards per play. Um, Jackson had a very good game and he, and he had some good, he, he was very good last week as well, throwing not under pressure, um, in, in this game, but 11.3 it's, you, you, you want your quarterback to be around nine or 10 in a typical game, but, uh, 11.3, obviously outstanding. It did include that 52 yard throw to, uh, to, um, uh, flowers. Yeah. No. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, I think, uh, it, and he spread the ball around pretty well too, as far as the target share went, which was nice to see. I don't know if he wound up having one to Duvernay ultimately. I know he got the one called back, but got pretty much all the receivers involved other than him, uh, whether it was Aguilar, whether it was Beckham early on, who I thought looked really good before the injury. Uh, Bateman getting involved a little bit, and then obviously Flowers, but not only them, you got Mark Andrews getting back in the mix, probably not even fully healthy and looking really good still. So yeah, he pushed the ball pretty well, uh, but they didn't overdo it. I mean, the one shot play, it worked out well, and you kind of just take that and say, all right, that's good enough. And the rest of the, uh, the rest of the game, it was just a lot of intermediate stuff and it all worked really well in their favor. Yeah. I, I, by the way, I think it's a great point. And even the fact that they got three targets to Duvernay, but didn't get him a catch. I'm not too concerned about what I like about the fact that the ball is getting spread out much better than it has in past years is that it actually forces the defense and, and, and further advanced scouts to look at that tape and decide that, hey, we really do have to defend this receivers. We have to make difficult choices about who we're going to cover and decide how we're going to roll our safety help, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it gives them more dilemmas to worry about that, that are not easily solvable. So, so I, I really like that. And I think if, if you're going to act as if, if – okay, if you're going to say that you want to make the, other, the defense defend every blade of grass – then you really have to be willing to throw the ball to pretty much every eligible receiver. Yeah, I think it's an important thing. And for confidence, too. I mean, you're talking about some young guys still, uh, especially there with Flowers and then Duvernay's. He's starting to come into his own. But Bateman, talk about confidence issues. I mean, the guy was not in a good headspace uh, for very valid reasons coming into the season. So spreading the ball around, getting them involved, it's just a little bit of a mental boost for a, a receiving core that uh, outside of Beckham still pretty young. 
Yeah, very true. Okay, I go through these stats really quickly. 12 ball out quicks, 36%. He was 9 of 12 for 49 yards, 4.1 yards per play. That's not particularly good. You'd expect a little bit better because you're truncating out of the sacks when you when you have the ball out quickly. Eight pressure events, 24%. What's really nice about that is that's a very low number, very low number. And I know some other group, Next Gen, had him as 9% pressure rate. I'm not in agreement on that because I, I'm protective of the cone, so I'm using a little – there's definitional difference there between the two of us, obviously. Uh, I would be interested to know which plays they counted as pressure or whether it was just pressure at the throw, say. And so a flushed Lamar is not a pressured Lamar. That may be a, a definitional difference they're using. But in any case, he was five of eight on the throws. He was pressured for 41 yards. So it, it's 5.1 yards per play doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a really good number when you're under pressure to have no turnovers, no no fumbles, no sacks, no nothing like that occurring, and 5.1 yards per play is excellent. Yeah, the stats also back up that when he's been clean, he's hit pretty much every big opportunity, which is huge. I mean, last season, how many times did we see him have a clean pocket and just whether he was skittish or whether he didn't trust the receiver, it just totally scattershot on some of these plays. I think of him against the Bengals last year uh, under the lights when he missed Tylen Wallace for what should have been a touchdown, a walk-in touchdown. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of those. So it's nice to see him, uh, nice to see him settling in and feels like he's trusting his offensive line. He's trusting his receivers. You know, the play calls are good and uh, everything's just clicking right now. Yeah. I mean, everything's perfect when you can step into a long throw too. And I, it, the, I, I got a little bit of tr myself into a little bit of trouble for talking about the flowers throw. I'm, I'm honestly not crazy about the amount of risk entailed in that throw being thrown into double coverage, but it's hard not to like the, I mean, you can't not like the result obviously, but what I would liken it to is a, 28.3 point shot in college ball say where you go no 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 crank shot <laughs> kind of thing. it was just it was that kind of thing to me is is you know you're at a point in the game where, you, where you'd love to have a sustained drive and you already are in pretty good field position from geno stone's interception return although not as great field position as they should have been in but but pretty good field position we won't beat on geno anymore over this but i i it's just my position. Please, I, I hope folks will understand there. Some people have been beating on me about on, on Twitter about this. Uh, it's not a big deal or anything, but uh, we'll understand my, my feeling on the matter. No, you're being process based. And I totally get that. And, uh, you know, maybe the results don't necessarily excuse that, but maybe it goes back to and listen, our guy, John Harbaugh, a little bit of an emotional coach. I think he was feeling that wave. And I, Spencer said it right before the play. I want a shot play. I want them to uh, to really kind of rip their heart out here. And I think that probably had to demoralize the Bengals a little bit where we just give up this massive uh, interception. Essentially, uh, it was well covered. Yeah, exactly. It was a seven point swing at the time. And then all of a sudden they hit this big shot play to flowers. The, the emotions are just running high on the Ravens sideline. They're all jacked up. They run down the field there and they score a touchdown, turns into a 14 point swing. You know, you're, you're probably right in that entailed a little bit of risk. What I liked about it, though, was it seemed like. Lamar knew exactly what he was doing and even throwing into double coverage. A lot of people were making the point that, oh, well, if he puts a little bit more air under that, then Flowers walks in. Well, if he put a little more air under it, then the Bengals defend defenders probably catch up to it as well. So he put it right on Flowers helmet like he just ripped a, a sniper shot in there. And um, maybe maybe I'm excusing it a little bit. Maybe I'm getting a little swept up in the result, too. But I, I see what you're saying about the process, maybe not being totally perfect. But the fact that it worked per to perfection, I think, is uh, it's a thing of beauty because we were not seeing much of this last year, were we? It, it, no. And, and it, you know, it's a beautiful on target throw. And I'll tell you what, nothing will draw more safety attention 
than a ball stuck in there like that with an with a you know a very tight left right bracket bracket and that's what it was it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't an over top safety it was a it was a safety who's trying to catch up to the play so the danger was on an underthrow there primarily or yeah. or off left or right i mean underthrow or off left or right but in any case the the uh uh nothing will draw more safety attention from the next several games for flowers than that play so you've got a guy who can certifiably go catch the football. You've got defensive backs have a very hard time keeping up with him, even though, honestly, the, the Bengals defensive back on the play, I don't remember who it was, kept up with him pretty well with, with outside leverage on the play. He gave up the inside leverage to Flowers. I, I, I thought, you know, all in all, opposing advanced scouts and defensive coordinators are going to look at this and say, we got we got to double Flowers because there's no way we can let him do this play after play. We need to force him to take this shot again and we'll intercept the ball sometimes when they throw it. Yeah. And then what do you got behind him? A couple solid possession receivers. He got arguably the best tight end in the league. You've got a solid tight end behind him. You've got the best running quarterback in the league. You've got a solid running game. So the, the, the off season plan seems to be coming to fruition here pretty early on. Yeah, absolutely. Loving it. I agree. Uh, who do you think that ball was intended for in the end zone? I mean, there's some talk that uh, OBJ might've been the intended receiver. And by the way, that play is a good indication that it's not just within the Roman offense that receivers end up in the same spot. It's a natural effect of extended plays in the national football league is that you end up with, with uh, uh, oftentimes receivers in, in the same place. Yeah. I think it was intended for Beckham and like that goes into, I'm so glad that you said that because after week one, people were doing screenshot. Twitter was just having so much fun with, Oh, these Ravens receivers were in the same area. It's like, guys, it happens in every single offense. Yeah, it maybe happened a little bit too often in Greg Roman's offense. I'll grant you that. But this screenshotification of uh, of social media, and we're, we're going to point out these mistakes here and get, get all nitpicky. It, it, it grinds my gears a little bit. But yeah, I do feel like it was intended for Beckham. Unfortunate that one didn't work out. But uh, yeah, it, it honestly, a little bit of a yakety sax, funny visual kind of play, really, when you think about it. Yeah, it, it is a, you, you, you point out an excellent issue in general is, People take the visual to be more important and then they lose the kind of the at the batting average component of this. Now, what do I mean by this? We don't judge hitters by their longest home runs. And we can see videos of Gunnar Henderson's longest home runs or, you know, whoever it might be, Shoei Otani, whatever it might be, their longest home runs. Probably a bad hitter would be better, like Rob Deere or somebody from recent times, Adam Dunn, who was a big power hitter who also struck out a ton. Um, but you but you see you, People want to want to have a visual confirmation of their own thought, and then they use it to convince themselves that their narrative from all the time was correct. And and that's a general problem with with trait based uh, people. People want to lean on trait based things and use available all twenty two to try and show it. It's it is not a um, comprehensive way to view what you're trying to. To do, and so I really respect people like Michael Crawford, who looks at the run game in and looks at every single play and charts it, uh, and, and other people like that. Uh, you know, PFF's process. You may not agree with every method they use for scoring, but they do look at every every player on every play, and you, they've at least got that to go for. And so they've got a framework built up that is one of the best for looking at offensive linemen, for example, from other teams. 
Yeah, and I don't want to go too crazy because some of these people doing these screenshots are the ones that are actually sitting down and watching the tape, which is something that I don't do probably nearly as often as they do. So certainly respect on that front, but let's just maybe calm down a little bit with the uh, reactionary. Oh, saw this screenshot. Let's put it out there and uh, yeah. spread misinformation. Uh, it, it, that that part just kind of irks me a little bit. Yeah. All right. What else we want to talk about? Let's talk about the running backs a little bit because Gordon up from the practice squad for this game, you know, it, Praise from Harbaugh before the game, as as he was a guy they they would uh, you know were very happy with. Uh, the running back snap division in seventy five snaps was Hill forty three, Edwards thirty two, Gordon zero. So uh, they didn't put him on the field. They did have Devin Duvernay in the backfield lined up twice, which I thought was very interesting. And I guess I would ask the question: Do they need Melvin Gordon and the? potential for acid reflux it will cause with John Harbaugh. I don't want to lead the, lead the witness too much. Uh, it were he to fumble the football as opposed to just using Devin Duvernay in the backfield for, you know, three to five carries per game or three to five uh, uh, snaps per game. Yeah. And a touching tribute to Greg Roman there getting Devin Duvernay involved in the running game. But yeah, this, this Melvin Gordon thing is just, it's already gone too far in my opinion. And it's funny you, you say acid reflux for John Harbaugh, because I feel like this is like John, John gets his guys. He gets his picks of the litter. I think on some of these uh, back end of the roster players, I feel like he has this fascination with Melvin Gordon. Maybe he was watching him eight years ago, carving up the big 10, uh, you know, when Jim was just starting out at Michigan and said, Oh man, that's, that's a dude right there. But Melvin Gordon's had fumbling problems the last couple of years when he's been on the field, when he's been healthy. And that hasn't really been the case. So I don't really understand this fascination with him. I feel like it is a hardball thing. And I feel like we're going to be getting, and it's funny because we actually did get a little bit of a uh, hands on his knees, head down John last week, but it feels like this is potential to uh, maybe cause a little bit more of that. Right. The other thing we, we, he got really upset about was the penalties on the defensive line. And I, I, he, he, you know, he turned his back on the field to chew out Duvernay and Travis Jones together, not Duvernay, um, uh, Matabike and Travis Jones together uh, about their penalties. Uh, boy, uh, then then Matabike had Matabike had another one in this game. Queen almost had a had another uh, uh, roughing the passer, but it seems like th- there are multiple things that can kind of kind of get him going. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, fumbling, I think, has been one of the things traditionally that has led to benchings from Harbaugh. Yeah, and it feels like uh, Melvin Gordon. You know, I, I hate to hate to brag on the guy before he's really had any significant uh, action here, but it feels like he could be heading there. But I mean, talk about the duality of man with Harbaugh. He had that going on. And then you had the end of the game where he's uh, maybe as jacked up as we've ever seen him, you know, he's grabbing Keith Williams by the shoulders and he's throwing justice Hill around. It it was, uh, it was quite a, uh, quite a varied performance by him. That was a, that was a very honest uh, revelation of how Harbaugh viewed the importance of this game. I think it just for, he knew it was a huge game. They'd just gone in. I mean, you got the double whammy of dropping Cincy to 0 2, 0 2 in the division. You got, he didn't know about anything about the injury to Burrow and what was going on, but he knew they'd beaten Burrow. And that, and that was a, you know, monkey off their back to a, to a certain degree after the, the two losses at the end of last year. Um, and of course, the Ravens, you know, what it means to them as a franchise to win that game is it can't be understated in terms of, of where they are to start the year in the division. Uh, I, I, I feel like, you, you you need to look for two things from Harbaugh to uh, to decide if you're getting something that's honest in, or or straightforward in terms of what he's doing. And I I don't think di- John Harbaugh is a dishonest guy. I think he intentionally misleads people on injuries and he makes extensive use of coach speak in interviews as well. And I'm not I don't have a problem with either of those because that's the that's the job description. But what I do have it what I what I 
I, I latch on to when I hear it, I'll say in interviews, as he when he goes out of his way to be specifically effusive about a player. So the best example I have is when he talked about Chuck Clark and taking the green dot over and he goes, he said something like he's bold, brilliant and brief or something, but he went out of his way to be alliterative about it so that he would make his point. And he clearly really believed it from the nature of that thing. Otherwise, you know, you say Chuck Clark's a veteran in this league. Uh, he's more than capable of the green dot. He's probably better than 75% of the, I mean, he could even say that and it would still be coach speak. Um, but, but as soon as he gives you something to really latch onto, that's where you, you know, my ears perk up a little bit to what he's saying. Yeah. I think it's kind of, it can be canned at times, but I think he wants the players to hear that. I think, uh, he wants them to, uh, because he's probably not when he's in these meetings with all the players, he's probably not going to single guys out, uh, mm -hmm. too much and, you know, you know, lift a guy up too much and maybe make, you know, teammates or competitors in the same position, not feel as good, but he wants them to, uh, he wants them to know that uh, he's got got his eye on them. Certainly, I think he's he's very savvy with the media in that regard. But yeah, man, he's a. Uh, we were t I was talking about this with Kevin Ostriker earlier tonight. He's just a guy that, you know, and there there are other ways to do this. Bill Belichick certainly uh, is not this way. He just wears his heart on his sleeve a lot of the time there on the sidelines, and whether it's. Uh, in a big game against, uh, I think it might have been the Bengals playoff game last year where he's getting the sideline interview and he's just not having it. And he's just, he doesn't care yeah. that the, the sideline reporter knows that he's not having it. He just wasn't into it. And he was just very, very upfront and honest about the fact that, look, I got a game to coach. I really don't care about this. Let's just move this thing right along. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you have this, this past game where it's hands on the knees, head down. I'm sure the cameras know or the cameras are watching me right now, but I don't care. And then, yeah, the end of the game. I don't care that the cameras are watching me celebrate a uh, week two game like I just won the Super Bowl because guess what? This is really important to me. This is a team that knocked us out of the playoffs. This is a team that, to the point that Roquan Smith has made, has talked a lot of smack in the last mm -hmm. couple of years and uh, does not really show us a lot of respect on a personal level. So guess what? We're happy that we just came in here and returned them the favor a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. It's not dissimilar to some of the past Pittsburgh wins. I don't think we need to even beat this point in the ground where he talks about how, you know, this, this series is played between mighty men and things like that. They literally go into that kind of a uh, talk. It, it, obviously he really believes in that and, and the importance of physicality in the game. So you know, it's, I, I, I'm getting a good feeling about this in terms of you're looking for the same cues from what he says, either in the interview or what we see on the sideline from him in terms of just jumping around and doing stuff. But it's, uh, it's, it's, he's a, he's a very interesting character, but I don't think he's as complex as people would make to be out of, or he's, you know, like a closed door in terms of all information. I ascribe that much more to a Belichick. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think he's uh he's an open guy, an honest guy. I think at the end of the day, he's a guy that you would want to play for, certainly. And I'd I'd love to to write the book on him one day. We'll we'll see if I ever get that access. I just think that would be really fascinating. But like you talk to these people that have been around him for years, like a Pete Gilbert, and it's just like, yeah, man, like whole he'll talk to you at a press conference and he'll say like, Hey, that's a stupid question or whatever. But then yeah. after that's over, he'll walk up to you and say, Hey, let me explain to you why I said that. I'm going to take you into my office. I'm going to show you the film of why we checked it down to Ben Watson on fourth and 16 and why that actually made sense to us in the moment. So he'll, he'll wear, wear his emotions on his sleeve. He'll call his BS out as he sees it, but he doesn't do it without any intention or purpose. And uh, he doesn't do it with malice in his heart. Right. I would agree with that directly. Uh, well, let's move on here because I, I have a good story with that, but I won't use it for this time around. I thought on the final drive, one of the things I really liked about the Wavens ran at the clock, and they had six run plays, two first downs, um, is they they did a lot of mix of concepts. So one of the questions, of course, that, that's really come up is can the Ravens run out of 11 personnel? Well, first of all, they didn't have 11 personnel on the field. They had 21 and some 22 on the field. 
during those things. So that that was fine. Um, but they did a really good job of of mixing up concepts. They had a couple jet sweeps, uh, a couple keepers. They had mesh plays involved. One at least where Lamar held onto the ball and and moved. And they had I think they had one design pass where Lamar ended up scrambling as well. Um, but every single one of those six plays, in addition. The ball carriers were very savvy about going down in bounds, including Lamar, who was getting dangerously close to that right sideline. Now, where I'm curious on the splits here, when we talk about 21, does Ricard lining up as a tight end count as that? Um, not not necessarily. That would really that would technically be a, be a 12, but I, I would I would ask for a liberalization of that definition. Where if Ricard's in the game, I'm really calling it 21, regardless of where he is. But you're right; it, it'd be a 12 if if he was, or it could be a 13 where he was because they used a extra offensive lineman as well during that series. Yeah, certainly. And this is something that obviously I'm not super studied up on, but I just think it's uh, getting them into those situations is a good opportunity to develop a guy like a likely who's certainly just more of a pass catcher into a run blocker. Like I feel like Mark Andrews has developed into a pretty solid. Oh, run blocker. He, was, good, yeah. he was not that guy at Oklahoma and they've uh, they've done a really good job with him. So I'm curious to see if that's going to translate to likely's game at all. Yeah, I, I think that's reasonable. I, I, he, he had some really good blocking games last year. Charlie Kolar is a guy who, who could be a good blocker. He certainly has the size to do. He's gotten bigger this offseason, which is one of the things that came up in his interview at camp this year was, was talking a little bit about that. But, uh, but I agree with you uh, on that. I, I'm going to take just a moment because I'd like to have one like kind of teaching thing or at least one way to look at it here. There's, there's two different things about formation, and you just asked me about it specifically, so I'm going to, I'm going to get back to it for a second. There's the apparent formation, which is what you show the opposing defensive coordinator and what he needs to react to in terms of his personnel. So you shuttle your players onto the field. They're in the huddle and you've got, um, let's say, Ricard, two other tight ends and, and a running back and a wide receiver out there among your skill position players. You've shown him an apparent 22 personnel grouping as I, as I would th- think about it. And then they might line up differently. You might line up with three tight ends in that, in that set. Your back is split wide and you're empty. I mean, you could, you could, you could do a lot of crazy things in, in terms of how you set up, but you could more than likely you could line up with three guys at the line of scrimmage at tight end, maybe one flex and, and in a YY set otherwise, and then have your, your running back behind you and try and run the football out of that. Uh, they, they, they did some of that. The other nice thing that they did, and I did not see this coming from Monken at all, uh, they, they did do it a couple times in week one, but they they run ran 10 different unbalanced line formations in this game. And that included five on the, on the six plays on the final drive. So they were really making heavy use of that. Um, they were uh, tucking in um, Moses to reduce the, the chance of somebody getting around him on a run play, which I think was very effective, using McCarry on the end of those formations. And even on, they use Zeitler a lot to pull in this game, and they're having Zeitler often pull from the other side to the heavily loaded side of these uh, unbalanced formations. Falele also did a pretty good job in three snaps, which we'll get to a little bit later. But uh, I love the use of unbalanced line by, uh, by Monken down the stretch in this game. Yeah, I'm guessing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but do you think that's a function at all of some of the injuries that they were dealing with? I do think that they – that. Um, Actually, no. Okay, here's why. I think I think it was a function of wanting to more than anything, wanting to tuck Moses on the pl- on the wherever the strong side was going to be. So I think it was a matter of either. I think I don't think it would matter whether it was Stanley or McCary on the outside, and I don't think it really had a big impact on what Mustafer's responsibilities were. 
on the play. I think it was a matter of tucking Moses in a place where uh, he's, he's more likely to help you with his big, powerful uh, uh, ability to move people and not get beat to the outside. Yeah, he certainly had a, a tone-setting block there on one of the opening drives, and I think uh, they, they got some good usage out of him, and he's looked really, really solid to start the year so far. I'm certainly no line guru, but it it, it doesn't jump off the screen, which is what's good to see, and um, it's, it's something that's nice because I think he's had some consistency issues or maybe just like hasn't totally been the uh, the strength guy that they build him as when they brought him in. But other than that, I mean, he's just been a very solid starter there on that right side of the line, very underrated signing that's really yeah. dividends for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's one of the great free agent signings they had in recent years. Last year, he had a very good year. And this year, the first game was not very good, honestly, but he's playing against Will Anderson, who's the best player the Texans have got, and you know, obviously was giving anybody trouble. Um, and then the, the, the second game, he's terrific, and we'll get to it a little bit later, but he was the Ravens' best lineman, and I'll, uh, I'll go through that with you in the, in the second part of this show. Uh, what else do we need to talk about in this, in this game? How about, how about the, the switch and the use of Duvernay? So seven snaps in week one. And it just felt like they were holding him back to be this new gadget guy against the Bengals again. I don't think it was the injury to Dobbins or anything about that. I honestly, I, I don't think that was the reason. But now they, they, all of a sudden they returned him. And week five of last year, the game in Baltimore, Duvernay was a huge gadget player for them. Yeah, and maybe I'm... <laughs> Maybe I just see a few Twitter accounts here that do this, and maybe this is just me doing something that uh, you know our former president used to do with many people are saying, but it, it seems like there's a lot of talk about just jettisoning Duvernay out of town for like a fourth-round pick or something like that. I'm really just not on board with that at all, unless something gets really bad as far as depth goes at a certain position. Maybe you could trade him for a, a player that would help you in the more immediate, but I just don't understand this rush to move on uh, from Devin Duvernay from, from some people. I just feel like he's a guy who can still offer you something he certainly does in the return game still, and then if you have one injury in that wide receiver room, then all of a sudden you're probably going to be relying on him to take some meaningful snaps in games. Yeah, I, I think there's that for sure. I agree with everything you said just said, but I, I I'd even go a step further that I think Flowers, uh, his best usage is as the deep threat who draws safety help because there's not really anybody else who reshapes how the defense has to play the Baltimore Ravens and can force the the, the personnel to certain places other than Jackson himself, who forces his own coverage, forces a spy, forces everybody basically to be focused on the mesh point and, and the potential for a boot on every play. All that is great, but if you have Devin Duvernay along with Flowers, then Devin Duvernay can run a lot of your gadget plays that you now have going to Flowers. He's not the the tackle, the missed tackle machine that Flowers is, but you know, I I kind of like the idea of having Duvernay take some of those smoke screens and be the guy who tries to maneuver through traffic on it, just because uh, there is some injury risk involved. I don't want Flowers taking a bunch of hits this year. Uh, on little short, little dumpy passes like that, where Keaton Mitchell or Duvernay or Justice Hill could do it. Yeah, Duvernay came hot out of the gates last season. I think he had uh, several touchdowns for the first month. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously the whole passing attack kind of fell apart uh, to a certain extent, and uh, he was a part of that. But I don't know, man. He, You could do way, way worse than having that guy as your fifth wide receiver. And I, I love the depth that he brings. And I love, to your point, the, the plays that he can still make within this rotation when they want to get him involved. Yeah, it's been... I. I I still really enjoy him as a player, and and I hope that they'll uh, they'll continue to throw him the ball. I don't think he lost trust from this game for, for not catching two balls. One of the balls was kind of a catchable ball; it would have been a little bit difficult. There was a short pass, and it was I think it was reviewed, or they the officials got together and they decided it was an incomplete, but it appeared to be complete right at the start. And then and then the ball in the end zone would have been an unbelievable catch 
that he nearly made. So hopefully that's actually a, a slight plus trust ball from Lamar's perspective. But I, I'm glad to see the ball is getting schemed to him still a fair amount, and I hope that will continue, uh, even if there are some some bumpy uh, uh, times ahead because I think he could potentially be a really valuable guy to have the ball in space. Yeah, and uh, helps in the run game with the jet sweep decoys when they uh, want to move him along, uh, to your point. So, yeah, just a versatile player and uh, hopefully an important cog moving forward. All right. I agree. Let's, I, I, I did want to, I'll, I'll mention briefly, Ravens are playing a lot lighter this year, 1.48 heavies per play. If you've been following this show, uh, they were at times north of 2.5. Last year, they ran the absolutely the heaviest schemes maybe any team in NFL history has ever run in a relative sense, meaning relative to the average of the rest of the league. They're far up, far more tight ends, OL6, and fullbacks last year than anybody had played in many, many years in the NFL. The closest had been the 2019 Vikings with 199, and they were at 236, 2.36 per play, that is. So uh, it's it's interesting, 1.48 yesterday. They're obviously – the the, the the offense has been monkinized. There's a lot less Ricard usage. And frankly, there's a lot less tight end usage in this. So we, we've seen a lot less of, of Kolar, who was – is Kolar inactive this last game? He was inactive, right? Yes, yes. And, and we've seen a lot less of likely in terms of total snaps on the field. Yeah, and that's nice that they're leaning into it right out of the gates, that we're not just going to be this overly reliant on tight ends, one-divisional passing attack. We went out, we got you know this this high-priced wide receiver on the free agent market. We drafted one in the first round for a reason, and we are seeing them get really good usage out of them to start the season. All right, well, fair enough. agree with that. Tell you what, we will break, and uh, when we come back for part two of the episode, it'll be a separate download, folks. Uh, uh, we'll talk about some individual performances and we'll talk about the offensive line play but first uh jake where can people find your work online you can find me on twitter at jake luke that's l-o-u-q-u-e and then you can find the x of 52 podcast on youtube and wherever you get your shows talking orioles talking ravens all that kind of stuff it's all there we're doing uh at least three episodes per week throughout the football season probably more as the orioles kind of gear up for the playoffs here so check it out all right outstanding stuff i highly recommend it other folks out there if you'd like to be on a film study short hit me up with a DM on Twitter. I'm always interested in hearing your ideas and I want to work with you. If you have an idea for a study, I haven't talked about this in a while, and you want help getting started on how to do an analysis project, for example, but you'd like to figure the answer to a question and you're willing to put in some time on it, love to talk to you about that. Again, DM on Twitter. They're always open and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get right back to you and talk to you about it. We'll probably have a phone call if you want that to, to discuss it more. Uh, and always, of course, interested in, uh, in analysis or thought experiments or other shows that make good pods. Jake, thanks again for coming on. Happy to do it, sir. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.